0: I'm Neil Acharya, and I am Nate Sager, and welcome to Sports Lit. Well, basketball leads the way again. The sport that trailblazes in so many areas of North American sport was the one that essentially signaled to our continent that we had to shut things down across the board. It was March 11th, Rudy Gobert, a positive test of the coronavirus, and of course mid-game and pre-game cancellations and well, everybody else knows the uh, rest. It was the start of the pandemic as we know it uh, in North America. Our last podcast was on March 10th, uh, a day before all of that went down with former NHLer Brian Berard. There were a number of books we were supposed to cover that were gonna be released in the spring and summer that we decided to postpone until a later date. And for now, we're going with the current uh, fall releases from a new location until the Toronto Public Library deems it safe to record on their premises once again, so far on Sports Lit, we have yet to cover a basketball title until today, uh, where we you know, we have the great pleasure, Nate, of speaking to Jeff Perlman about three ring circus, which is a study of the Kobe Shaq years in L.A. when the Lakers won three consecutive titles from 1999-2000 to 2002. All the while, a gong show was brewing and then acted out on a daily basis behind the scenes and we as the public saw glimpses of that, Perlman covers that extensively. A book like this is right up Perlman's alley. He is the author of nine books including The Bad Guys, one about, you could say, the detestful 86 Mets and Boys Will Be Boys about the Dallas Cowboys championship teams of the early 90s and all the hijinks and debauchery that occurred uh, during those title runs. Perlman uh, has been a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and and an ESPN columnist and wrote a weekly column for The Athletic. These days, he's still writing books as well as hosting a podcast called Two Writers Slinging Yang. (laughs) Uh, Three uh, three Ring Circus is set to be released uh, later in September, and there is also a future work slated about Bo Jackson. Before I let Nate delve further into the book, I give Perlman a lot of respect for doing what a journalist does. He went back in time and gave the full story as it was told to him, and it aligns with the history of the time that I think mo- both me and you remember, Nate, growing up during that time. Um, Kobe, especially, has been immortalized since his tragic death on January 26, 2020. Truth be told, before he gave, him the self, gave himself the nickname uh, for marketing purposes of Black Mamba or won an Oscar, he was a genera- generational star but he had a lot of growing to do with the, with the Lakers, and they may have benefited from number eight being less singular and better adjusted. Uh, the PR spin might tell you otherwise, but it's certainly how I remember it playing out. Being objective is what it's all about, and when you boil it down, when the supporting characters, Dennis Rodman, Derek Fisher, Gary, Paytman, Payt, sorry, Gary Payton, Carl Malone, when they vanish into the ether, this is about two alpha males that could not coexist, and Phil Jackson... Wait for it, Nate. He completed the triangle.
1: (laughs) Well said, Neil. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Uh, I saw a picture on one Facebook group I belonged to the other day, and it was a publicity shot, New Orleans, Jazz, late 70s, Pete Pistol, Pete Maravich, Gail Goodrich, each dribbling the ball up the floor. And I was thinking, that's the only way that Kobe and Shaq could have existed. (laughs) Two balls at the same time, man. (laughs) Uh, Anyone who understands how the NBA works knows the alchemy to be a championship team. You have to have one at least one inner circle superstar Kawhi Leonard with our our Raptors last year and a couple more stars who kind of accept on some level that they're not inner circle Kyle Lowry for instance you know and buy-in from the rest of the roster and the those late 90s early aughts Lakers didn't really have that at all they had again two guys and only one ball and only one ball and Jeff Perlman you know it's really hustled to put that Team in that era of the NBA, which was, I think a lot different from today's game, where it's you know all pace and space. To really put that into context, uh, what seems to set apart Jeff's work is he has the sensitivity and the with the you know the talent to convey it. That well you know sports is presented to us and we consume it as this fantasy world. You know it, it's it's a job for the for, for you know night for all of the athletes and they bring all the same baggage often born out of insecurity into their workplaces as, as the rest of us. And, you know, that that can make for a lot of drama when all <laughs> those people are put in close quarters for months months on end, because, you know, and that's it's probably amplified right now with the pro sports that are going on with the, with the all the bubbling, as it's called. And Jeff, you know, in all of his work, he really hustles to track down interview subjects to try to present, in his words, an honest sincere detailed recollection of a period Uh, if that means you know tracking down the college teammates of barry bonds or brett Favre or or the place kicker who was cut in jimmy johnson's first dallas cowboys minicamp in 1989 he goes and does it Uh, now of course with uh three ring circus and the account of you know the kobe bryant shaquille o'neal years of the lakers the honest recollection is going to be heavy by times uh we do need a sort of a trigger warning here. We'll probably touch on sexual violence, uh, so be, be aware. Uh, getting it right with presenting a portrait of those Lakers means showing that the late Kobe Bryant's young self, he came to the Lakers when he was barely 18 years old, straight out in, straight of high school, so you could do that then. You can't do that right now in the NBA. They have the one-and-done rule. Uh, he was a bit of a self-involved jerk, and there's reasonable belief that he raped a young woman in Colorado in 2003. So the reaction to Jeff's book when it does come out later this month will be interesting. I know it's been barely seven months since the deaths of of Brian and his 13-year-old daughter, Gigi. I know the, l- the only other book that Jeff's written about where this subject was deceased was his, you know, incredible Walter Payton biography. Sweetness, that was a published a decade after Payton di- died, also at a, at a relatively early age, and there was, there was an overreaction to it. But I think we needed this book because, you know, it shows that Kobe Bryant existed before, he, when he was the guy who was, you know, trying to, you know, be what, you know, look like he was, you know, authentic and he, you know, it wasn't, he was a dude, he was a dude from the suburbs who spent been his early years in Italy. And, but he eventually did evolve into, you know, um, you know uh, a Titan of, industri- titan of Industry and, and a girl dad who practiced allyship with uh, women's basketball. Uh, and I'm sure that's the vision of Kobe Bryant. A lot of people have, but we, we need the other one. Just like we need to remember things about Vince Carter that aren't that have kind of been pushed as, aside with his recent retirement. Uh, you know, as a reader of all of nine of Jeff Perlman's books, now I know that whatever <laughs> he presents, it's going to be well sourced, and he's definitely you know thought about it over. You know, Jeff thrives at sort of building a narrative with these larger than life people, uh, like a good TV script. I think his reader has always given a sense of what his subjects want at a particular time in a particular place. In uh, Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, were both guys who, you know, I wouldn't say forced their way to Los Angeles, but they understood that there's a spotlight in L.A. You don't get anywhere else in in uh, the NBA. Uh, you know, not in New York, not in Boston, not in Golden State, certainly not in, in anywhere else. But they needed that to. But they needed to have that spotlight. They needed to win. LA's a, if you're not first, you're last kind of town. But what I didn't realize about the book was they how vertically integrated they were in their careers. You know, Shaq wanted to, you know, he owned his own brand. He was like, hey, Jordan doesn't own it. I need, I need to have my trademark on everything. Uh, Kobe Bryant had a shoe contract with Adidas before he put his name on an NBA contract. And they both had agents, uh, L- Leonard um, Armato in Shaq's case, Arn Talam and Kobe's who he had this whole plan laid out uh if not for that you know things could have turned out a lot differently bryant could have ended up being a teenager on the fledgling toronto raptors or vancouver grizzlies or he could have gone to the phoenix suns they drafted because in 96 they drafted some guy named steve nash wonder wonder whatever became of him <laughs>
0: heard he's a he heard he's a coach now
1: yeah he's a coach now i think we know oh the people the truth i think if it isn't obvious already, uh, where we stand on the subject, I I will say I was not on Team Kobe. I was a Chicago Bulls guy, and here was a guy coming along, like literally copying Jordan's mannerisms and saying I'm the next Jordan. So I was kind of like, yeah, no, you're not. But he came pretty he came pretty close. And but you know when you're force fed somebody's starting that much, you're bound to push back a little. And you know when his legal counsel in Colorado went to such lengths to discredit a sexual violence survivor that it led led the state to have to revise its rape shield laws. Well, I guess that just locked in me being a curmudgeon for the first and only time in my life, right, Neil? (laughs) Uh, But that said, you know, what happened, you know, his death, it was a prompt to, you know, realize, you know, get down off the high horse, make some space for other takes. Uh, The blog Moderately Cerebral Bias had a heartfelt take that, you know, Kobe Bryant's single-mindedness and his urn stardom, it kind of validated being a black nerd when before popular culture had gotten that into the mainstream you know you didn't have you know the black uh, comic book movie superheroes in the 90s you just had steve urkel whom obviously we were, you were intended to laugh at so i mean that that's you know jeff's book and his well-crafted narrative has been a prompt to think about all that and, and i think he always keeps everyone's humanity central to central to the book even when he writes about the current president and how he ran the USFL into the ground. (laughs) Uh, For all those reasons, we're glad to have him as our long overdue first basketball book guest here on Sports Lit to talk about three-ring circus coming to you soon from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt.
0: All right, and uh, we're going to talk to Jeff in just a moment. All right, we're pleased to have Jeff Perlman on Sports Lit podcast, and of course, his book is coming out on September twenty second, Three Ring Circus. And Jeff, I, I want to ask you, uh, which is probably the question you will get most and often asked, which is the how the book opens, uh, the author's note. Um, I would like you to just describe what you what you wrote in the book about you know working through two years of this research and. You know, writing a warts and all kind of story, and then, you know, Kobe unfortunately passes. Have you, did you wrestle? How hard did you wrestle with that um, when, when, it, when you heard?
2: Um, I mean, it, wrestling isn't even the right word. It was like uh, your first reaction is shock and sadness. Um, I'm not even just saying that. Like, you, your first reaction is just shock and sadness. Like, that this, how did this happen? And, and, you know, a friend of mine texted me when I was sitting in a coffee shop and told me that he died and it just didn't seem real. I don't know. It just seemed weird and off and wrong. And, um, and actually on that day, someone said to me, uh, so this really helps your book. And I was horrified, like just disgusted by that very idea. I mean, it really was like, who gives a crap, you know, like it's just a stupid book compared to someone's life. So, um, and then a bunch of days passed and I just thought I have this book it's coming out and it covers a period of Kobe Bryant's life and it's not always pretty, you know, it involves rape accusations and sort of a lot of developmental struggles. And so I just thought I had to put something sort of at the beginning, the book was done. And I said, I can't just pretend this didn't happen. So my editor and I agreed, you know, just to kind of have an author's note at the beginning, basically sort of explaining that, um, you know, that this is, uh, this is here and this and the book is not a complete chronicling of kobe ryan's life it's just a period when he was young and kind of dumb and immature and it's not the full person who died at age 41 i don't know it's really hard and really awkward
0: yeah it certainly it certainly comes across that way and, and it, you know it, it frames it for sure that you know this is a kobe of a certain time which is important
2: uh, i think it is i mean it it's weird like i don't it's weird to like encourage people not to buy a book, but I always I, I firmly believe if you don't if you're someone right now and you just love Kobe Bryant and all you want to hear are the positives and you just want to embrace the memories of his major games and you don't want to know anything bad about him at all like anything at all um, this probably isn't a good book for you you know like the Mamba mentality which he wrote uh, is terrific it's very you know positive and upbeat it's all about hard work and his drive. And this book really is a look at a kind of complicated period of his life. So, I'm not. If people come up to him and they're like, "I love Kobe Bryant. He's the best," I would always say, "Listen, man, you may not like everything you read about him here. So, if, if you're if you're holding on to a certain memory of Kobe Bryant and that's specifically the way you want to remember him, um, I probably wouldn't read this book."
0: You you know you've been in media for a long time, so you've seen. I know. I think me and Nate would agree. There's a, some sort of a transition in you know where the the story comes from and you look at the last dance and maybe Michael Jordan's control over it. And I, I mean, do you think the public now is kind of swayed to, do they just want to hear what they want to hear? And I, I think of here in Toronto where we are with uh, the whole Vince Carter thing. I mean, uh, it, you know, that documentary came out a couple of years ago and everyone seemed to, and with his retirement, everyone seemed to forget that he was supposedly telling people plays and he didn't want to dunk and he didn't try that hard uh, they they wanted to hear about all the other stuff, the twenty year vet, and this and that, and yeah, I'm just wondering if people uh, kind of have a um, they want their they want their their I guess stories digestible in some way.
2: I don't know. Actually, that's an interesting. I was as you were asking that question, I was really
0: kind of wiggling with that one in my head. I
2: I think people like knowing behind the scenes of what really happened. I think we're all suckers for that. You know, whether it's a movie that tells the life of so and so or a book or a podcast. So, so I don't think people are, are not, uh, are no longer willing to know what happened behind the scenes. I do think something has changed in the landscape because, um, athletes and entertainers now control so much of their own messaging, uh, through social media and just sort of being able to wall off people and give what they want that I definitely think it's a little more, um, socking nowadays, maybe when we learn about sort of, you know the complications and the struggles because we usually we're not always given access to that anymore, and we hear so much positive about people, and we just see it all through a filtered lens. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's actually a hell of a question. I don't really know the answer.
0: <laughs> You're supposed to have all the. I'll no, just go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish and, I did. And,
1: and, and is that sort of the genesis of what drew you to write about the about the Lakers for this this your I think second basketball book?
2: You know, I just. um The last, I wrote a book called Showtime that was about the Magic Kareem era. And it ended with Magic you know, and his HIV announcement in 91. And when I wrote that book, I was living in New York and now I actually live in Southern California. And I just think people, I just felt there was a really interesting continuation, almost like a sequel where you have, you know, Magic comes back. He actually came back in 95 uh, and it didn't go well at all. And that comeback and the failures of that comeback really in a lot of ways led to the Lakers getting Kobe Bryant from Charlotte in a draft day trade and getting Shaq as a free agent. So it just seemed like kind of an interesting, almost like a sequel. So I just kind of jumped into it. Also, the characters are so huge. I mean, Shaq, Kobe, Phil are three enormous characters. Uh, And when you write books, I I think in a lot of ways, sort of like movies, they always ask who's the character people are going to hang on to and who's the character who's going to draw people in, whether it's Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker or whoever, I think with books – in sports teams, it's the same thing. People want characters that they can relate to and that they're interested in.
0: And then those characters are really almost. I mean, you like. I mean, I don't know. I use the word the triangle in in, in this relationship here too. It's uh, kind of ironic that Phil, Kobe, and Shaq, when you boil it down after everything, are really the the three characters I found that you know that stay with you in this. Um, so well, I didn't. I didn't
2: view. I don't I didn't. I didn't um, it's an interesting thing. Like. I'm a fan of writing these books and digging into all the different characters. Like that mm-hmm. to me is part of the joy. It's not just writing a Shaq Kobe book. Right. It's digging into Nick Van X on Eddie Jones. But I will say this book, more than any book I've written, um, it was like a, it was almost like you were trying to get away from the gravity pull of a planet and you just never fully could. <laughs> like Shaq and Kobe so dominated that era and their relationship so dominated it that even you're writing about Rick Fox and you really find yourself pulled back to Rick Fox dealing with Shaq and Kobe a lot of the time, Derek Fisher and Robert Ory. So I felt like they, those two guys had such a sort of dominant presence on that franchise that it was, it was hard to get away from.
0: You know, you've written obviously numerous books, but um, take you behind the scenes of a dynasty. Um, I think you're on your 10th book now with Bo Jackson. Um, mm-hmm. um, a dynasty or a great player like Bonds or, or, or Peyton. So. As you progress in your career uh, with you know this type of subject matter, is it easier or harder to get people, players, to talk to you? Because I, I I love that part at the end about J. I think it's J. J. R. Ryder, uh, or my mm-hmm. yeah, the, yep. where you, you know way you show up at his house and then he seems kind of angry, but then he talks to you for two and a half hours. And what is that like now? As you get further in your career, are people more weary of you, or are people just more willing to talk, or both?
2: Um. I actually think it is it's a generational thing like i think so this is this book is the most modern team i've written about um you know they're the most modern athletes kobe bryant didn't retire that long ago a lot of these guys didn't retire that long ago and modern athletes are tougher than older athletes they just are they've been brought up in a different world they've been brought up with social media they've been brought up with handlers telling them you don't need to talk to so-and-so and and you don't need so-and-so and a lot of times those handlers are right because if you have twenty million Twitter followers, what do you need? An article in ESPN, you know, at mm-hmm. ESPN dot com or sure. author? like you don't you don't need it the same way. So that's gotten a lot tougher. I don't think. I think my rep. I hope my reputation is as a, as, a, as a fair, you know, an honorable and hardworking writer who who does his best. And I I don't think most athletes really give a crap who I am or not who I am. I don't think most of them know who I am. I'm just a guy who wrote a bunch of books. So. <laughs> I don't think my personal reputation has anything to do with it. I just think it's about the age. When I, like, for example, you mentioned I'm working at a Bo Jackson book now. Well, a lot of those athletes, most of those athletes, Bo Jackson and his contemporaries, came along in the 80s. And they've been retired a long time. And they were used to a different relationship with the media. And the Bo Jackson book has been a million times easier to report than Three Ring Circus.
0: Was, was this, would you say, this was this one of your hardest books to, to do? Or uh, where would it, would it rank in it, terms of, uh, yeah, I, I guess with the Kobe death, of course, but overall and just your research and writing of it?
2: It was so hard. It was, it's one of those things where, like, you, uh, you're happy with the finished product and you feel really proud of it and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. But it was freaking a really hard swim. Like, it was really hard. I think it was the hardest book I've ever worked on. It beat me down. Team books are really hard because you have to. One of the challenges with a team book always is getting past the repetition of seasons mm. and finding things that are unique in different seasons and finding breakout people and finding narratives. Because the one thing you don't want to do is get into a get into a sort of pattern where it's, and then the Lakers yeah. played Sacramento. And yeah. then two days later, they played Philly. Like, bad sports books do it that a lot. You yeah. know? And I don't know if my books are bad or good, but I'm just saying I try to avoid that at all costs. Yeah. but with team books, it's really, really hard. It's always a challenge. Uh,
0: the uh, the Sam Cassell big balls uh, 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 part. I did not know that. I did not know that how that that uh, ended up uh, costing them the series. It could have been uh, they could have gone on. Right? I, I didn't know about that. Yeah,
2: Minnesota. He did the big balls dance, and he uh, <laughs> he pulled his groin. You should never do the big balls dance. There's a uh, there's a message in that. There's a lesson in that. Don't do the big boss
0: uh, It never works so out. So I, I, we we all know it, we've all seen people do it. But uh, th- did I know the backstory? No. So I'm glad you included that. I definitely that was a big takeaway take takeaway for me. One of them. Um, so in terms of legal, then how, how does that work? From a we're talking of strictly from a I guess a book publishing point of view here. You know when you have this many characters, you have sensitive topics, uh, especially in this book. How does that work? Do you have to, like, get uh, the publisher's lawyer to go through this? Do they come back and you say, hey, you know what, you better not put that in? Or was that corroborated by X amount of people? How does that work?
2: Yeah, well, I always, first, I always hire two fact checkers on Mm. my own to go through the book and and make sure everything is accurate. Mm. And then number two, um, the publisher always has an attorney who goes through it. And then there's a meeting. It's always the least fun meeting you go through where... (laughs) you'll be on the phone for like three hours with an attorney and they'll say, where'd you get this? Where'd you get that? I don't know if we can use that. That doesn't seem right. Blah, blah, blah. And so you kind of go through it with a fine tooth comb and, and, uh, it's a pain, but obviously it's, it's really important. Also, um, just legally uh, it, 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 they're public figures. Now I'm not saying that in any, I'm not, it's not a reflection of my book or anything like that. I'm just saying generally legally public figures have a, have a much higher burden of proof.
0: Right. So,
2: if you wrote, just as an example, if you wrote, Shaquille O'Neal had his two days as a transvestite. <laughs> the, the, not that I wrong with being transvestite. Right. I'm just saying if you wrote right. something like that or, you know, whatever, it was mm-hmm. a of coke. You would actually have to it's, – it's kind of messed up. For a public figure, you have to prove not only that the information is incorrect, but that it was maliciously done. Mm-hmm. So if some author comes around or some tabloid – that's why tabloids in America always get away with so much – because mm-hmm. you're able to say, look, it wasn't it wasn't maliciously done. Someone told us that. Right. Blah blah blah. So okay. It's just a lot harder.
0: Right. Um, can I get you to um, you're gonna surprise us with a with a section of this book you're gonna read. Uh, do you have the book with you right now? I do have the book with me. I only have seven, seventy-three 73 copies in my house out of day. But don't ask me for one. Uh don't worry. We've got the uh we got the uh online galley, so we're we're um but yeah. Oh, nice. Um yeah, by the way, I don't know if you know our rule on this, well you probably wouldn't. Why would you? But yeah, the we we have to read every book before we do an interview. It's uh you know, cuz we've seen so many people on like breakfast TV or whatever talking about their book and you know the, the interviewer never knows the full story. So, yes, we... Uh... Wait, can I give you real quick? Can hey. I give you my greatest hits of that
2: kind of category? My uh, favorite things I love from that?
0: Okay, please tell us.
2: Number one is when they say, we're, we welcome Jim Perlman to the show. So that's always good. Number two <laughs> is when they always go, so what made you write this book? Right? And you can tell they haven't read it. And then they'll say, tell us something interesting you learned about blank or they'll say is there is there anything new in this book and you, you want to say bro you're, you're holding the book you have the book you could i'm sure you're on the toilet at some point today you know like but it's yeah yeah so i appreciate you guys reading it i, yeah. I really
0: do it was the rule when we started the podcast and it uh, i mean we wouldn't do it any other way i mean uh yeah, so I mean, and, and granted, those people that that do those interviews—they're—they're they're, you know fitting in somebody in five or seven minutes, and, sure. And and, and of course, but but it's certainly you know yeah uh, definitely a motivation for us doing what we do. So with that said, if you uh, we'd love for you to read a portion of uh, Three Ring Circus right now, if you can.
2: Okay, I got a. Actually, you alluded to the part. I'm reading. It was one of my most fun parts to write. That's the only reason I'm going to do. Give it. <laughs> um, it was from the epilogue. I'm oh, just going to read oh, from yes. the epilogue. Okay. Is, go, is that yeah, that's
0: cool yeah, great. It's a perfect segue.
2: All right, here we go. Uh, on the morning of December 21st, 2018, at approximately 9.30, I pulled up to what I believe to be the house belonging to J.R. Ryder, ran my sweaty palms along my shorts, and, with great trepidation, rang the doorbell. Ever since playing his final NBA game 17 years earlier, the former slam dunk contest champion and erratic leaker for 67 games had largely, largely vanished from the public eye. He conducted one or two interviews and made their way onto YouTube, and a 2011 clip showed him dunking a basketball. Otherwise, nothing. Having spent the previous day a stone's throw from his Chandler, Arizona address, and after repeated failures to land a phone number, I decided to give the surprise, I'm here, thing a shot. These books, after all, are only as good as the most obscure person an author speaks with. So as I stood, waiting and waiting for someone to answer, I considered two questions. A, what would I ask J.R. Ryder? B, what would I do if J.R. Ryder tried to impale me with a steel pipe? (laughs) So I waited and waited and waited and, Hello? There was a little boy, maybe four or five. He opened the door ever so slightly, peeking through the crack. Hi, I said in my best Barney voice, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. The lad vanished, and two seconds later, a woman appeared. She was about my age, thin, long brown hair. Can I help you, she asked. Hello, I said, less Barney, more Magnum P.I. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a writer. I wrote this book. I held aloft a copy of my recently published USFL chronicling, and I'm trying to find J.R. to talk about his time with the Lakers. She asked me to hang tight and close the door. Again, I waited and waited. Then I overheard the muffled sound of two adults barking. The woman seemed calm. The man seemed irate. Who is it? I heard him say. The door opened again. There stood J.R. Ryder. Shit. He was familiar but different. The goatee was now speckled with gray. His physique, once Herculean, was soft, with a flat Goodyear midsection. What struck me as unchanged was a scowl. He was scowling at me. Who are you? Ryder said. Yeah, so I'm Jeff Perlman. I tried reaching you. I'm writing a book. The scow remained. Wait, he said from behind the screen door. Wait, wait, you come to my house? You just show up? Uh, yeah, I said, but no, 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 he said, no. You just don't show up unannounced at my front door. The thing is, I said, I, not cool, Ryder replied, now stepping toward me, not cool at all. I was bracing for the steel pipe. He stood inches (laughs) from my face, the refreshing splash of J.R. Ryder spittle brushing against my cheeks. You don't call, you just come, he growled. That's how you operate? Are you fucking kidding I mean, I said, I tried a pause. Why are you here? Ryder asked, what are you writing a book? I told him about the Lakers from 1996 to 2004, the Shaq Kobe fill years. I thought you'd be a good guy to talk to. Suddenly Ryder took a step back. I saw his facial expression shift ever so slightly from, I will fuck you up to perhaps I will fuck you up. (laughs) Hmm. He said, those are some good teams, huh? I nodded. I've got some stories. He said, man, I have some stories. Darryl Ryder and I wound up speaking for two and a half hours.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, bringing it back to the early section of the book, I, I have to admit, like, I was in high school when, you know, Shaquille O'Neal was playing in Orlando, when Kobe Bryant was coming out of Lower Marion High School. Uh, mm-hmm. to, but it was interesting how you established that they both had agents who had this whole grand plan that ultimately led to Los Angeles. To what extent were they kind of ahead of the game with, you know, today's, you know, branded, you know, corporation unto themselves, a uh, pro athlete.
2: I think way ahead. I mean, I, I actually, I've used actually both of them, really. I mean, Kobe had a shoe deal with Adidas coming out of high school and nobody really knew how he would wind up in the NBA. He was basically a kid with a lot of talent and a cool name and a dad who played in the league. And, you know, Sonny Vaccaro had been, the the Nike guy behind Jordan and now he was at Adidas and he was really looking for the second Jordan and he took a shot on Kobe and all that time when Kobe was talking about will I go to the NBA, will I go to college he knew he was going to the NBA because he already had a studio lined up with Adidas and then Shaq coming out of Orlando, I mean his real plan was to be an entertainment mecca, that was his thing, to be an entertainment mecca so he did if you haven't seen the movie Kazam, you need to see it because it's just (laughs) the best and he did he did Steel, which is basically, you know, gone with the wind of you know, <laughs> epic movies. It's terrific. And he had a bunch of rap albums that were some of them weren't terrible. And but his his agent was Leonard Amato, and he'd been saying from the time he started representing Shaq coming out of LSU, we need to get you in California. We need to get you in California. And the other thing they did that was really interesting, like um Michael Jordan does not own his own logo. So Nike owns the Jordan brand logo. That is a Nike property. And Shaq, when he got his deal with with uh, Adidas, uh, Reebok, um, if you remember, there's this logo of Shaq hanging off a rim. Yep. And it became known as like the Shaq dunk, whatever thing. And uh, they made sure that traveled with him. So if he got a deal with Pepsi, Pepsi could use that. Um, Reebok could use it. Everyone could use it. And he was really the first guy to really, really not just be a larger-than-life NBA brand to himself, but to carry all the rights with him which was very, very, very intelligent.
1: And and how commonplace was the was the way that Arn Tellem and, and the Bryants kind of approached the draft at that time? Because I just thought, okay, he's a 17-year-old guy straight out of high school and he's a guard, not a big man. 13th overall seems about where he should go, but he kind of like picked and choose which teams he was interested in like the our Toronto Raptors we can say that are we're in Toronto and the Vancouver Grizzlies the other Canadian franchise he was just like no not interested they were both expansion teams at the time
2: so do you feel like the Raptors would have been better with Kobe Bryant than Marcus Camby is that what you're saying
1: <laughs> possibly
2: he <laughs> <laughs> could make one could make that argument uh, it was it was pretty unheard of it wasn't You know, agents would put a lot of pressure on GMs and they would say, you know, if you want to get blank, you better sign blank, you know, or if you want this to happen, you better consider so-and-so. But it was really, the audacity was amazing. I mean, the Nets were all ready to take Kobe Bryant and Kobe Bryant's parents were all set for the Nets to take Kobe Bryant and he would have been close to home and it would have been great. And his agent was just very dead set on getting this guy to California and the mechanisms that sort of weren't playing. It was one of the most interesting things I've ever read about just everything that happened. And really John Calipari, who at the time was a young Nets coach really chickening out and just, you know, even though everyone around him said, look, if we draft him, he will sign here. He's not, not going to come here. Calipari just getting really terrified of this idea of making this colossal mistake and drafting a high school kid and then having the high school kid snub the team and go play in Italy for the year is all too terrifying for him. And that's why they took Kerry off. Um But everything behind the scenes was working against everyone but the Lakers. I mean, it's really a fascinating sort of system of, of interchanging parts and overlapping conversations that, that led to Kobe getting to the place he wanted to go, and he was just some high school kid
0: yeah and that that probably I'm imagining was one of the most complicated parts of the book to write because just in reading it I'm imagining you you probably are dealing with a lot of egos and maybe a lot of people that don't want to look bad so were you getting conflicting um, versions of what happened on draft day with Kobe or was it pretty much the same thing It's really interesting
2: I didn't actually get conflicting versions I got little there's some stories that I had to figure out how they lined up um Calipari doesn't talk about it anymore, and he refused to talk for the book. I mean, refuse is too strong of a word. He didn't talk for the book. And I think that would have been my conflicting version, because I bet there's no way he's like, yeah, I just <laughs> screwed up. I was really dumb. So um, it was funny, though. At one point, I was interviewing Kendall Gill, the former net, really good player, and I was just talking to him, because at one point he almost signed with the Lakers. And he's like, yeah, I got a really good story about the 96 draft. And he basically said he was his... Um, he was repped he and Kobe were repped by the same agents and he was with his agent when Calipari was on the phone and he said he, he couldn't believe how big of a wimp John Calipari was about drafting Lou Bryant I just thought that was all really interesting
0: yeah it was definitely interesting to read and uh, I mean just on a side note um there's a book that was released here in Canada of a basket about a basketball player named Carl English and I that really t- dives into the whole the ways the agents can dictate drafts. Um, so it was interesting because obviously we do a lot of hockey books here because we're in uh, we're in Canada, but um, it was it was interesting to see that tie-in in the way agents can uh, can steer things come come draft day in June. Um, I
2: I just want to say I've never seen a league more manipulated than the NBA by agents and spokespeople. It's really remarkable. It used to be you were doing a story on an NBA player, let's say I wanted to do a story for Sports Illustrated about like Mike Bibby or Paige Astoriakovic or something like that, it would be you call the Kings. The Kings say, when are you coming? They say, okay, we can get you Paige or Mike for 45 minutes course side after practice. You show up, you sit down with them for 45 minutes, you're done. You got your story. Who else do you need? I'll get him and him and him. And nowadays, it's really limited and really hard. And the agents and the handlers pretty much own – basically the PR people for the teams work for the agents now. It's a really fascinating and
0: kind of depressing system. (laughs) Um, I'm going to jump onto um, the theme of selfishness and that has been a theme in some of your books because some of the books you write about or uh, topics and people you write about are these stars uh, like Bonds and Mm -hmm. Love Me, Hate Me um, and, uh, you know, some of the other guys. I mean, I don't think it really applies to Walter Payton so much but how do you... Do you find selfishness and greatness tie into each other? And ultimately, does that kill a team? That's a great question.
2: I mean, I um, uh, it kind of depends. Like, um, I wrote a Brett Favre biography, and Brett Favre had no interest in helping Aaron Rodgers out when they drafted him um, out of Cal. Like, no interest whatsoever. And I always, I always thought the criticism he got for that was unfair. Because you're a quarterback, you're holding on to your career. This is how you make, this is how you take care of your family. Blah blah blah. Why are you going to help your replacement? If you told me tomorrow there's some guy and he wants to write sports books and he wants to write your sports books, can you help him out? No, I don't, I don't really think I will. I think I'll pass on that. And I, I do think too often we, thanks for that. I think when it's a problem, I'm sure at least to some degree you're alluding to Kobe Bryant during these years. <laughs> and I think when you are on a when you're an NBA player and you think you taking a shot with two guys hanging all over you is a better decision than the guy next to you taking a wide-open shot, I think that's trouble, you know? And the Lakers are a very really complicated one with that question because on I mean, one they didn't win the straight titles and Kobe won five titles. On the other hand, they probably could have won more titles and they probably could have had a happier existence doing so. I mean, he was really exasperating, like really, really exasperating, especially those early years with Van Exel and Eddie Jones and Shaq um, he was just happy shooting five for 17 if he thought he was getting his. And that's really a killer. And, and I think his career. this is weird to say, I think Kobe easily could have had a Vince Carter career, which is to say a really, really good career where he doesn't win that much, but he scores a ton of points and he's an excellent player on some very good teams. Um, I think if some things hadn't gone right for him, having Shaq as a teammate, having Phil Jackson as a coach, being surrounded by a bunch of really savvy, smart veterans willing to put him in his place, he easily could have been a guy who averaged thirty nine points a game or you know, whatever, thirty four points a game for his career on forty one percent shooting and maybe lucked into a title. You know, I just think a lot of things helped him along the way.
1: It, you know, indeed, and I, I sort of got caught, caught, caught watching here. But uh, what, now, when you, you know, Kobe Bryant did get criticized a lot in that period, and Shaquille O'Neal sometimes seemed to escape it. But what what was the, the sort of the best way to understand him as a personality in that period? Shaq or Kobe? Shaq.
2: Um, kind of fascinating. First of all, he, uh, in terms of that relationship, if you just look from afar you would think, oh, Shaq must be the secure one and Kobe's the insecure one because Kobe's the kid out of high school and he's hucking up all the shots and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Shaq always wanted the, and he, he talks about this, he wanted the love and appreciation of Kobe Bryant and he wanted to be this big brother figure and he wanted teammates to come to him. And in that, in that way, he was much more sort of uh, insecure than Kobe was. On the other hand, I don't think I've ever written about a better teammate than Shaquille O'Neal. I really don't. I don't think I've ever written about a guy who was more loved by more players than Shaq. And, I mean, I just love, like, when Mark Madsen was on the Lakers. <laughs> and I mean, he's just a great character and such a nice guy. And like, Mark Madsen kind probably the AC Green of this era, where he arrives, he's probably a virgin, and he comes out of Stanford, and he's Mormon, and he's gone on his missions. And when AC Green came to the Lakers in the 80s, as a renowned virgin out of Oregon State, the Lakers just brutalized him and made his life kind of miserable and mocked him. Madison comes along and Shaq takes it upon himself to be his personal Mormon matchmaker. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> they'd be on a plane sitting next to each other on a flight or wherever, and and uh, the the flight attendant would come over and Shaq would be like, "Hey, you Mormon?" You know, like he was just the best, and like you know they had a they had a guard named uh, Joe Crispin. Yeah. He was really good to the little guys, like really good to the little guys. They had a guard named Joe Crispin, and uh, he was about to have his first – guy out of Penn State and nobody, end of the bencher, about to have his first NBA game, and Shaq insists on flying his family in. And Crispin, no, you don't have to. Shaq's like, one way or another, I'm flying your family to this game. And he doesn't just fly them, he flies them first class. He's just a really, really big-hearted, decent guy with some insecurities, but we kind of all have them.
1: Now, how does that – that Shaquille, and you'll fit with the one who had the portable turntables to drop a rap about Kobe Bryant on the, on the team plane, I think it was.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, not the best, but uh, I just think, you know, if you've been around sports and you've been around teams and you have sort of seen how it goes, there's just a lot of that. I guess for good or for bad, there's just a lot of that. I mean, basically, this is why Kobe is, is going through his, his ordeals in Eagle, Colorado and the Lakers are flying without him. And Shaq does this kind of rap based off of that 50 Cent song, Pimp. Mm -hmm. And it said, instead of P-I-M-P, it's R-A-P-E. And he does it for the whole team, and everyone's cracking up. Um, But, you know, like, it's hard to explain without sounding callous and whatever, but, like, within the confines of a sports locker room and within the sort of confines of that world, it just struck everyone as really funny, not overly malicious which is weird considering the
0: topic. So the, the counterbalance that you presented is, you know, it it, cause Sha- it is slanted, right? Shaq is the, just like you just talked about, Shaq is the, the nice guy. He's good to people. Um, and, you know, Kobe is the opposite, but I, I guess the counterbalance is Kobe's uh, singular focus drives him to, you know, to greatness eventually, um, especially after the 2004 years when he, you know, in a different way when he matured a bit, but Shaq, I guess the counterbalance on a negative side is he didn't really um, take care of he didn't pay attention to his game right in the off season. Was that kind of the counterbalance to Shaq being this great guy who dominated is that he just didn't uh, put in the effort, so to speak?
2: Yeah, I think so. I, I always think there are two ways to look at it. Like um, Kobe had a better career than Shaq. I think nine out of ten people would say Kobe Bryant had a better overall career than Shaq. Right. Um 10 out of 10 people would say Shaquille O'Neal enjoyed the journey more than Kobe Bryant. Mm. You know, like he didn't work that hard in the off season because he was on a boat smoking a cigar, you know, like (laughs) he was enjoying the ride and I would rather enjoy the ride. On the other hand, if you think about Kobe, the number of people he inspired with his work ethic still inspires with his work ethic. And you really saw that when he died in the aftermath. Mm. I don't think, I don't think a lot of people realized when he was going through it, how meaningful it was to people, this idea that if you want it, you have to go after it. And the dream isn't winning the NBA title. The dream is being in an empty gym at two in the morning, taking jumpers. You know, he has those air balls, air ball after air ball after air ball in the Utah series. It's a real yeah. embarrassment. It's a real embarrassment. And where is he that, you know, the next day he's taking the same jumpers in an empty gym. Um, and he wasn't, he was less devastated by it than motivated by it. I mean there are very few Jordan, maybe Michael Jordan, there are very few people who are that, and I just think that level of commitment, I mean it was crazy, but it was it got him where he wanted
0: to go. It's, it's so interesting that that section where you talk about how he just missing shot after shot, and um, yeah, I mean, you've got to be uh, they say in, in sports, uh, the great great guys have uh, short memories, I guess, in so, to some degree, uh, and long memories in other areas, but yeah, I mean, to put that beside you, I mean that could buckle. A, a normal anybody, I think, if you have, you know, that Nick, perf- Nick Anderson, for instance, right? Sure. I, I mean, if you, yeah, or I mean, I mean, John Starks had a pretty bad game, didn't he, against Houston, one for <laughs> something? Yeah. So, so, yeah, that could really uh, define you, and it, it just, you know, no one even I, talks about that, really, you know, when they think of Kobe now. So uh, that was interesting.
2: Wait, that's actually that's actually a great point that I never really thought of in that regard. Like, easily. His career could have been defined by that easily, if you think about it. If things had gone differently, he could have always been remembered. And the way, when I think of Nick Anderson, I think went to University of Illinois, played with the Orlando Magic, choked really badly at the free throw line in a playoff game. It's just as conceivable that I think of Kobe Bryant, I think jumped out of high school, made a mistake doing so, and had those four air balls in Utah that ruined his career. But he wouldn't allow it to ruin his career. It's, it's the guy. I'm telling you for all the flaws and all the warts in that time period. I mean, even take Eagle, Colorado. The guy was in the middle of his own sexual assault trial where he could have gone to jail for 20 years, prison for 20 years. He was flying in and out of Eagle, Colorado regularly, showing up at games, no sleep, exhausted. You know, this on his mind, the weight of this on his mind, a public embarrassment, a pariah in a lot of places, and he's still scoring 28 points. And whether you're disgusted by him or think he's innocent all the way, blah, 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 it had to be one of the greatest examples of mental sports strength we've ever seen.
1: And, and uh, that, that, that saga is sort of covered in the last section, you know, the 2003 four, I guess that, that was the really just a total Mm -hmm. soap opera season for the Lakers. They, you know, bringing in Gary Payton and bringing in Carl Malone and uh, you know, Kobe Bryant and having his, you know, court proceedings. Now you do a good job of putting everything in the context of its time and not, you know, going off into hypotheticals. But the way that people looked at that, at Kobe Bryant's, you know, court proceeding, the sexual assault charge, how do you think that might have unfolded, you know, 10 or 15 years later in in like a, you know, me too world? Uh, Not well, (laughs) not well at all. I I mean, it's amazing that he was
2: able to get past it. It's amazing. It's, It's one of the great surprising sports sort of bounce backs ever if you think about it, how public that was and how emotional it was and how raw it was, I do think in the Me Too, if that was happening right now, first of all, the woman who accused him of of sexual assault probably doesn't uh, drop off the case, doesn't drop her charges. She probably goes with it. And, you know, I interviewed the DA and I interviewed the chief uh, detective and both of them were 100% convinced that he was guilty I'm not saying he was or wasn't I'm just saying where they were at with their with their evidence. I think the odds would be pretty good he'd wind up in jail for a subne- substantial amount of time. In prison, I keep saying jail in prison, in prison.
1: And and what I also what I remember about that time was uh just it became this thing where uh, there's a great, there's a great sport baseball podcast I listen to called Tipping Pitches. And I think one of the hosts described Twitter as no one has the facts, but everyone's going to take up sides and yell at each other anyway. And that was like one of those stories where people were like innocent, guilty, you know. And it's just like nobody knows. Like it's you know, wait for the facts to come out. Uh, how how much was like what was that that like when that whole was going on, and maybe how much did it foreshadow what we see now with the. Confrontational element of social media, especially around politics in the United States, and I guess in Canada too these days.
2: First of all, I, I want to say you guys are so lucky not to be here. <laughs> I just want to say, Jesus man. Uh, I mean, it was an—it was almost like a weird intersection of celebrity gossip journalism hardcore investigative reporting. You have several Pulitzer winners reporting on this. Um, I the number of people I've talked to who were like, oh yeah, I was working on that story and it ranged from like the people magazine, fifth stringer to the New York times head of whatever, you know, like it was a wide ranging group of people who covered that whole story. Um, I think it was interesting. It was, it was a weird, there was a weird group of people Who felt like they knew Kobe Bryant because they loved Kobe Bryant as a basketball player? It's a really weird thing we do, and I do think we see that now. Like with Donald Trump, you see what you want to see: you either love him because he stands up for the for the little guy and blah blah blah, or you hate him because you see him as a con man. And I think Kobe Bryant at that point, you you just there's no way he did this. There's no way he did this. There's no way he did this. I've I talked to Kobe at courtside of a basketball game once, and he was awesome. There's no way he did this. He he signed an autograph for my daughter. There's no way he did this. Or, you saw him as just another entitled athlete who figured everyone wants to sleep with him, and you know blah 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 blah. So it really was like this this test of sort of where you stand and your firmness in a position. And it got really really weird with. People are outside the courthouse with Kobe jerseys, and the guy's literally on trial for sexual assault, and you're wearing a Kobe jersey with a sign, Kobe's innocent. It was was a weird thing.
0: The one guy that seemed to, the only guy that seemed to understand Kobe in this book is um, Rick Fox. And so we can add a little Canadian content uh, at the uh, end of this. Uh, Can you explain how Rick... Uh, on why and how, and you do explain it in the book, but can you explain to the listeners how, how and why Rick seemed to be able to understand Kobe?
2: Well, he was kind of the perfect storm of, uh, of backgrounds and personalities. So first of all, Rick spoke Italian. Kobe was raised speaking Italian. Um, Rick wasn't from the U.S. Kobe was raised outside the U.S. Also, Rick came from a Celtics team where he was, he was sort of mentored by Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, Xavier McDaniel guys who'd been around guys who, you know, understood the sort of the league and, and gave that to him. And, you know, he came with a really open mind. He arrived in LA with a really open mind and what he saw Rick is a really smart, really smart guy and a really good guy. And I think he saw Kobe as an outcast and as someone who wasn't able to relate to teammates and who teammates didn't have that much interest in relating to. And um, so he did what he could to kind of take him under his belt but it's funny because by the end, Rick Fox was kind of done with Kobe Bryant, too. You know, there was just, there's only so many times you can watch a guy shoot eight for 33 and have no interest in his teammates, um, where it gets a little exasperating. So um, he did try his best. So there were a couple guys. Brian Stahl was good with Kobe. Derek Harper was very good with Kobe in his year there. But most guys, just they couldn't crack it.
1: And, and it's something else I wanted to ask too. Now you, you often mention you know your wife uh, Catherine Guggenheimer Perlman. I hope, I hope I got the pronunciation right. She's an author and, yeah, a, si- an author and a psychologist. How how much does she help you help out is with just when you're trying to understand the motivations for someone's actions at a certain time and, and place?
2: Um. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, my wife is awesome. She's the best. She's. She's helped me a ton understanding my parents. I mean, my uh, <laughs> my kids. But um, I feel like mainly what it is, honestly, is like you cover sports for a long time, and if you pay attention and pay attention, then you pay attention, you really start to understand and try to understand the rhythms of athletes and the thought process of athletes. It's like the one, again, I kind of bring it up again because it's it's really telling. This idea, this idea that you're supposed to mentor your replacement. You know, like the cliche sports story is... And -and so-and-so took so-and-so under his wing, and he just knew it was the right thing to do. Quote, I just knew it was the right thing to do, and I want to help him as much as I can. But if you look closely, a lot of times, you know that these guys, they're insecure, they're threatened. The job of an athlete, I mean, it's here today, gone tomorrow. Your shelf life is really, really quick. Um, And I just think if you pay attention and you talk to enough athletes and you really listen to what they're saying, you can understand what it is. So... I was never a professional athlete, but I've interviewed a gazillion of them, um, and I, I just feel like the psyche—I kind of get the psyche of the highs, the lows, the ups, downs, the insecurities, the triumphs. Uh, I, I feel like if you cover if you cover this stuff for 25 years, which I've been doing, Jesus. Um, <laughs> You start to
1: grasp it a little bit. Yeah, it it is kismet. You bring that mentoring your replacement thing up because the man sitting at the under, other end of the table from me became a Chicago Bears fan because Neil Anderson was the successor to Walter Payton.
0: The uh, eighty six wow. team might have had something to do with that, Nate. But yes, uh, Neil yeah, Anderson yeah, yeah. certainly sharing a name helped.
1: But uh, but when you talk when you're bringing that up to you, i was struck by that passage in the in the farf book the really cruel prank that he uh, perpetrated on a young Aaron Rodgers before practice one day how did that story uh, come to light for you we just i know we're switching books but i but that that was an amazing story
2: <laughs> you're testing my memory here i know the story it was um, it, it, it's the, hel- I mean, the helmet no i know the story so, so basically um, they were doing a uh, they would put out memorabilia every day for um for all the players to sign. So the Packers would, would put out balls and helmets and blah, blah, blah and all the play- put them on a table in the center of the room, and all the players would sign it, and then they'd give it to charity. Well, one day, Brett, when, when Aaron was a rookie, Favre walks over to Rogers' locker when he's not there, takes his helmet and puts it on the table, and therefore signs the helmet. And then um, Rogers has to go out there. He's looking for his helmet, looking for his helmet. Finally, the equipment guy says, I think it's on the table. And he has to go out to practice with all the autographs on his helmet. And it was really mortifying, like really, really mortifying And, um, I mean, my general, my general approach to reporting these things is just talk to everyone. So I don't remember exactly. I'm sure some Packer teammate told me the story and then I mentioned it to another teammate and he confirmed the story and I probably asked three or four others and they confirmed the story. It's just a matter of, it's just a matter. I always say like Mike Penberthy and Mark Madsen and Kareem Rush, they're just as important as Shaq and Kobe because they were there for the experience as well in some ways more important because they haven't shared their memories and their stories a million times so i'm just i'm really busy calling to call everyone and just getting as much as i can
0: jeff uh i'm going to close out here by uh I, we we just a couple of small things we small things we touched on uh Bo jackson so um when do you expect that project to be done and that book to be out And do you have a title for it so far
2: man i do not have a title it's not due for another year, okay. which means it probably comes out in two years. Which is always weird when you tell people you interview. Mm-hmm. I'm always like, "Let me have your email address. I'll tell you when the book comes out in two years." <laughs> and it, it almost makes you—it's like, "Oh, thanks.
0: Uh, I'm alive." So. Um, the, uh, the book comes out on, on September 22nd, um, and for those in Canada that aren't aware of you, they, they, you have a website, obviously, uh, which is what. Uh, okay. to, can you tell me the, the can you tell us the uh, the website?
2: Yeah, I went with a clever name, JeffPerlman.com.
0: There you go. I wanted to go create it. No one had stolen it. Yeah, you didn't have to pay some guy who's holding it hostage.
2: I do. Wait, I will tell you real quick though. I had um, the way I got my blue check on Twitter is because someone started their own Jeff Perlman Twitter <laughs> account with the with the uh, identifying line Jeff Perlman is a cackling goosebag. So I actually reached <laughs> out to Twitter and said uh, someone's trying to pretending to be me. And I got my blue check.
0: Um, So yeah. Lastly, how do you how are you expecting this? I mean, we're recording this on September eighth, so you got about two weeks before this is uh uh well exactly two weeks I think before this book comes out. Three Ring Circus. How are you expecting this to play out? And off the top, I think we you know you might have touched on this uh, to some degree. Um, This this book uh, is as entertaining as as well as it could. It might be able to. It might anger some people. I'm imagining. So what are you expecting?
2: Man. I don't really know. I—that's uh, the honest, honest. I don't know. Like I went through. You mentioned briefly. I wrote a Walter Payton book years ago, mm-hmm. and um, it came out. Mm-hmm. But three, two or three weeks before it came out, Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt on the cover, and the excerpt was all about sort of Walter Parton's, Payton's dark years, with uh,
0: yeah, when he owned the depression bar,
2: right? and, and infidelity, right. and um, when the book. You know, so there was this three-year, three-week gap before the book came out and um, I just got non-stop hate and it was really really hard and really really difficult so I mean the best thing I can do is remind people I wrote this before he died it's just a period of his life it's not who he is was when he died at 41 and I mean hope that people understand you know but it's a cruel you mentioned social media it's a cruel world out there right now so I'm bracing for it a little bit I am.
0: Um, Is there anything else you want to add that we haven't asked you about I mean, how did I get to be so cool? <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. let us know that. Yeah, actually,
2: my uh, I, I eat a lot of raisins, and I do the Peloton twice a day, and I feel like that really has helped me a lot. Well,
0: I've heard the Peloton. Actually,
2: my kids think I'm the least cool person in the world, so it's a flawed. It's
0: <laughs> oh, uh, that's great. Um, yeah, no, I've heard the Peloton. Everyone's all about the Peloton now during, uh, during the, the lockdown. Is that
2: weird? Does that make me sound weird that I love my Peloton?
0: No, I've heard it from numerous people. Um, so, uh, yeah. you know, it just shows that you're you're normal like the rest of us, Jeff.
2: Yeah, I'm trying my best. <laughs> well, you know it's what? It's been a miserable year. It's been the worst year ever. So I appreciate you guys taking the time to even talk to me.
0: Oh, you know what? Thank you. And, uh, you know, I know Nate especially has been uh, on the Jeff Perlman train since day one. So, um, we are really glad to have you on and, and, and obviously diversify the sports we talk about, as we talked about uh, with you earlier. Uh, A lot of times we do hockey, being in Canada, and it's great to do our first basketball book with you. So thanks again. Thank you so much. And I just want
2: to say I grew up a huge Islanders fan, so
0: this has been a very nice year for me, at least uh, (laughs) hockey-wise. Except for last night, huh? That was a pretty (laughs) tough one. Um, But, yeah. Uh yeah, they're back. First time in the conference final since 1993. So there you go. Yeah, we don't need John Talares.
2: We're good.
0: Ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, now he's got some enemies in Toronto. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 well, thanks, thanks, Jeff. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate okay, it. Okay, bye-bye. Take care.